Genesis chapter 19, beginning from verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now he will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, This city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and we're going to look at it together, and we're going to pray and ask God for his help as we do. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and that all of your word is profitable for us. And so we pray that as we come to this now, that you would speak to us, um, that we would see you uh, more clearly, um, that we would uh, see, even in the midst of this awful stuff, your goodness and grace shine through. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, that passage is shocking on a number of different levels, isn't it? It's hard not to listen to it without squirming in your chair a bit. Attempted gang rape, sexual exploitation, incest, fire and burning sulfur, it's all in there. It's probably not what you were expecting to hear uh, when you turned up at church this morning. If you're new here, it's helpful uh, maybe for you to know that our normal way of teaching the Bible is simply to go through verse by verse. So over the past few months, we've been in uh, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we've been working our way through the life of Abraham. And because we go verse by verse, that means that sometimes there are passages that could be described as somewhat challenging to teach. And I'll confess that as I have prepared this over the past week, there have been times where I have been tempted to turn the page to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, not because this passage is particularly hard to understand, 
but because I know that it is likely to cause offense. Uh, but as we look at this passage, it's important to keep in mind what Paul says in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture, and that includes Genesis chapter 19, is profitable for us if we take it to heart. Uh, and so with that in mind, uh, let's dive in. Now, if you were here last week, then you'll know that we were in uh, Genesis chapter 18, uh, where God told Abraham that he had heard the cries of those who had suffered at the hands of Sodom and Gomorrah. God promised that before judging them, he would go down to see whether these cities were guilty of the crimes that had come to his attention. And we saw how that was his way of explaining to Abraham that whatever judgment he carried out on Sodom and Gomorrah, it would be based on all the evidence, that his judgment would be just and fair. And we saw how God had, had promised Abraham that if he could find just 10 righteous people in Sodom, then he would spare the city. And here in chapter 19, what we have is the result of that investigation. An investigation that actually initially gets off to a positive start. If you look with me at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, we read there that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Uh, right, so what we have here at the beginning of this passage is very reminiscent of the way that Abraham welcomed God and these two angels at the beginning of chapter 18. And what we're meant to understand by that is that in Lot's hospitality, what we see is the same righteousness of Abraham. Lot is the one person in this chapter who God considers righteous. And we know that because elsewhere in the Bible, that is how Lot is described. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 to 8, we read, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So notice there in those verses... Three times, Peter describes Lot as righteous. In his treatment of these visitors, in his condemnation of the actions of the men of Sodom, Lot is set apart from the lawlessness that goes on in Sodom. And he certainly seems to start out well. He offered hospitality to these two men. He went out of his way to provide for them, and he insisted that they stay the night in his house. We're told in verse 3, he pressed them strongly. That phrase is better translated, he manhandled them. It was almost as if he dragged them into his house. He had no intention of letting them spend the night 
in the town square. And the reason that he was so insistent becomes clear in verse 4, if you look with me there. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. Now remember, God had said if he could find 10 righteous people in the city, then he wouldn't destroy it. But here in verse 4, Moses, the writer of Genesis, is at pains to point out that every single man in the city was present at this gathering, young and old, all the people to the last man. It's very clear. As night fell, every man in the city turned up at Lot's door, and they came with only one intention. It's there in verse 5. They demanded that, that Lot bring these men out to them so that they could know them. Uh, and that word know in the Hebrew it is talking uh, about sex. This mob, they turned up to satisfy their sexual desires. This gang they wanted to rape Lot's guests. These men, they were overcome with lust, and they were ready to violently satisfy their desires. Even after the angels blinded them, verse 11, we read that they wore themselves out groping at the door. It's like a scene out of The Walking Dead. These men were so full of lust that even blindness didn't stop them pawing their way forward trying to get into the house. And their actions acted as proof, if proof were needed, that the outcry against Sodom was justified. The depravity of Sodom, the extent of their wickedness, was laid bare in the actions of these men. We're meant to understand that there was no chance of finding ten righteous in Sodom. Now, the sins of Sodom were many and varied. They weren't limited to sexual sins. But it's very clear that sexual sin was a major aspect of the depravity that was going on in the city. And what's described here is obviously homosexual in nature. Uh, but some have argued that what's being condemned in Genesis 19 is not homosexual practice, but gang rape. That what's going on here is a long way from a, a monogamous, loving relationship between two people of the same sex. But we actually need to go to the New Testament and the letter of Jude to understand the full nature of the sin that was being condemned. We read in Jude verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, so Jude highlights the fact that, that, that Sodom and Gomorrah were punished for the sin of sexual immorality. In the Bible, sexual immorality is all sexual practice outside the context of the one man, one woman marriage relationship. And Jude then goes on to, to point to the nature of their sexual desires. He says that they pursued unnatural desire. And, and that phrase is uh, what the Bible uses to describe uh, homosexual practice. We see it in Romans chapter 1. 
What, what Jude is saying is that it was the homosexual nature of their desires, not just the violent expression of them, that was condemned. Kevin DeYoung writes, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole region was not just a one-time attempted gang rape of angelic beings, but according to Jude, a lifestyle of sensuality and sexual immorality, at least one aspect of which was exemplified in men pursuing the flesh of other men instead of the flesh of women. Now, of course, I recognize uh, that that is a very uncomfortable conclusion to reach. Uh, some of what's condemned here we would have no problems agreeing with. Homosexual or heterosexual, we'd all agree that gang rape is horrific either way. But to say that homosexual practice is sinful in God's sight, to call it sexually immoral, uh, it would immediately meet with the charge of homophobia. And sadly, as Christians, we haven't always done a, a good job of articulating our faith when it comes to sexuality. And that's why it's important that, that we realize that the Bible doesn't just single out homosexuality when it talks about sexual immorality. The Bible tells us that we are all broken, and therefore we're all broken sexually. There is no room for a judgmental attitude towards one group of society. It's also important that we understand what the word homophobia means. It's defined as hatred or fear of homosexual people, but as Christians, we're called to walk in love. And that's what anyone who comes in contact with the church should find, a loving community, a community that demonstrates that God's rule is life-giving and good. And it is possible to do that. It's possible to love and care and accept someone while not affirming or celebrating a lifestyle that God calls His people not to participate in. There's a difference between acceptance and affirmation. But I'm conscious that this is a very emotive subject, and it's not always easy for people to see that distinction. That's why I think that for Christians to speak meaningfully about this, we need to be doing, in the, doing that in the context of day-to-day -day relationships with friends who are going through this, where they can see our love and our care for them. And as with anyone, we long for them to follow Jesus. And it's when someone decides to follow Jesus that the call to give up sexual immorality applies. Belief comes before behavior. The church should be a place where anyone, regardless of belief, regardless of sexual preference, regardless of their past, regardless of their presence, should be able to come and find love and care and blessing from the Christian community as they consider whether or not they want to follow Jesus. Now, I realize that that's a subject that raises all sorts of questions, and I can only really scratch the surface of it today, but I wanted to take the opportunity to highlight an event that is taking place here in Edinburgh next Saturday morning. It's by the organization Living Out. I think we've got a slide um, about that. And that's a, an event where there's an opportunity to hear from Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And they're going to be sharing their stories and, and talking through how the church uh, can love and support those who are same-sex attracted uh, to flourish. So I uh, commend that to you. If you want more information about it, then uh, just uh, follow that link or speak to me afterwards. Now, as all the men of the city gathered at Lot's door, demanding that he hand his guests over, we read verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, 
shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Righteous Lot, he, he bravely came out onto his front step and he pleaded with the men of the city not to do such a wicked thing. But then he immediately did something so appalling that it leaves us wondering how could he possibly be described as righteous? As an alternative to handing over the men, he offers them his virgin daughters, verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, Lot's proposal is shocking on so many levels that this father would be willing to sacrifice his two young daughters to this mob is appalling. But, but what it shows us is just how conflicted Lot was. On the one hand, he was tormented by the sexual immorality of Sodom. On the other, he, he lived in, right in the midst of it. The fact that he was sitting at the gate when the angels arrived at the city, it tells us that he had risen to a position of prominence in that community. Lot was a man who, for all his discomfort with what went on in Sodom, he was attracted to life there. The status, the comfort, the, the wealth, the, the pleasure that came with, with dwelling there meant that he was willing to live a compromised life. All the while, the sexual sin of Sodom ate away at his soul, to the point that he would be willing to offer up his own daughters to satisfy the lusts of his fellow citizens. And while we might be appalled by Lot's actions here, and rightly so, his compromised, conflicted lifestyle is one that reflects many Christians today. And nowhere is that more prevalent than in the area of sexual sin. Uh, things they know are wrong, things that weigh them down, become so habitual that they can become mired in habits that they can't seem to shake off. Where what they excuse, affirm, or indulge in eats away at their soul. Till they get to the point where they find themselves engaging in things that they could never have imagined possible. Lot's willingness to hand over his daughters to the mob, that's not the kind of decision that you reach in a moment. That was a choice made after years of living with a compromised soul. You know, maybe you're a Christian here today, and maybe you are living a compromised life. Maybe you're mired in some sin that you know is eating away at your soul. But the draw of it is just too much to give up. Well, take heed from the story of Lot. See where compromised living can lead. And know that, that even if you are mired so deep into something where you see no way out, that God in His mercy is in the business of rescuing His people even from themselves. And that's exactly what we see happen in Sodom. Now, thankfully, Lot's daughters are spared, not because Lot thought better of it, but because the mob had no interest in them. Instead, they respond with contempt, verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now, we will deal worse with you than with them. 
Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. So the reaction of the mob only confirms their wicked intent. As they react to Lot, there is a, there's even a racist element to their hostility. Suddenly, Lot, who had been given a place of status in their city, he finds himself being defined as a judgmental foreigner. In a moment, he went from a place of status to becoming the focus of their hostility. This mob turned their attention to Lot. They promised to deal worse with him than with his guests. Presumably, they intended to subject him to what they had planned for these men. But just as it looked as if Lot would be subjected to unspeakable horror and humiliation, we read verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And after striking the men of Sodom with blindness, the angels warned Lot what was about to happen. And in that warning, we see the extent of God's mercy. If you notice verse 12, they ask Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Despite Lot's compromised behavior, despite his disgraceful offer of his daughters to the men of Sodom, the angels warned him about the destruction of the city so that he could escape. And they didn't just warn him. They asked him if there was anyone else in the city who was connected to him. And notice they ask about his sons and his sons-in-law. Now, why is that significant? Well, because they were men. And we already know that every single man in the city was gathered outside, part of the gang full of lustful intent. And yet here, God's angels give them an opportunity to escape before it's too late. You see, here's where we need to understand uh, what we need to understand about every warning of judgment in the Bible, that it's an expression of God's love, His grace, his mercy, because it gives people a chance to turn to him before it's too late. And that was a chance that was given to Lot's future sons-in-law. We read verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. These guys they, who, who were going to marry Lot's daughters, they were part of the mob that planned to rape these men. And yet such was the extent of God's mercy that even they were offered the chance to turn from their sin and escape the destruction of the city before it was too late. But it was an offer they treated with disdain. They were so deep into the culture of Sodom that the idea of a God who would judge the city for its wickedness was laughable to them. They treated the idea of a God who would call them to account as a joke. But their laughter at that prospect of judgment was a denial of reality. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe you like the idea of a God who will judge wicked people one day, that justice will be done. Or, or maybe like these guys, you, you find the whole idea laughable, a bit of a joke. But if what the Bible says is true, then the judgment that these guys were warned about, it was just a foretaste of the eternal judgment that God will make on everyone who rejects him. 
That's what Jude is getting at in, when he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah in his letter in the New Testament and then warns about the punishment of eternal fire. The Bible is clear that all people who reject God will be judged for their sin. Now, that's either objectively true or it isn't. And right now, God lovingly gives you the opportunity to believe that it's true. Gives you the opportunity to heed that warning before it's too late, to experience His mercy so that you don't have to suffer his judgment. And that was the opportunity that God gave Lot and his family. But even with such a clear warning, Lot still demonstrated an incredible reluctance to leave Sodom behind. If you look with me at verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So Lot, this so-called righteous man, was so immersed in the temptations of Sodom that even a night of horror and an impending doom wasn't enough for him to head for the hills. So we read, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot had to be dragged out of the city against his will. You know, sometimes God saves us from our own stupidity. And that was the case with Lot. It's clear that God was being merciful to him here, sparing Lot from his own foolishness. But still, Lot clung to his old life. We read verse 17, and as they brought them out, and said, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Despite God mercifully rescuing Lot from Sodom and directing him to the place of safety in the hills, Lot still didn't trust God to protect him. He looked to Zoar, which was basically just a mini Sodom as the place where he would find what he was looking for. Lot, who had been dragged from Sodom, just could not leave his old life behind. He wanted the pleasures, he wanted the status, he wanted the wealth that a place like Sodom would give him. And Zoar was the next best thing, and so that's where he headed. And God gave him what he wanted. Verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So, in an extraordinary act of grace, God spared the city of Zoar on account of Lot. Zoar was in the valley. It was to be destroyed with everything else, but because Lot was there, it was spared. Even though Lot had acted out of self-interest again and again, even though he failed to trust that God knew what was best for him, even though he pined for a sinful way of life, God was merciful to him and to the city that he dwelt in. But as soon as Lot, the one righteous man in Sodom, had arrived in Zoar, God rained down his judgment just as he had promised. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So God did exactly as he said he was going to do. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. He took the time to investigate. He promised mercy even on that depraved city if he could find just 10 righteous people. But in the end, the one righteous man, Lot, departed the city, and then they finally faced the consequences of their wickedness. But despite the terrible evils of Sodom, and despite the warnings of destruction, there was one person who just could not let go of her old life. As Lot and his daughters arrived in Zoar, we read verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So as fire and sulfur rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife ignored the warnings of the angel. She hung back, and she looked back. She wanted her old life. She didn't want to let go of life in Sodom, and she paid the price. She was swallowed up in the destruction along with all the other citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was something about Sodom that she desired more than the rescue that God offered. And it cost her her life. Friends, don't miss the warning here. The comforts, the pleasures of a life in Sodom are never, ever worth it. In the end, they lead to death, whether it's wealth or status or possessions or a relationship or or comfort. Clinging to them and rejecting the deliverance God offers, it leads to destruction. In, In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus warns his followers. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife sought to preserve her old life, but instead she lost it. Out of all the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, only Lot and his daughters survived. But his plea to live in Zoar soon came back to bite him. We read verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So Lot, who had taken the lot when Abraham had offered him his choice of land to settle in, who'd enjoyed status, wealth, and and pleasure in Sodom, a place at the city gate as a man of profile, he now found himself with nothing. The consequences of his selfish decisions had left him at rock bottom. But just when you think there were were no deeper depths to plumb, we get to the last few verses of the chapter. Lot's daughters, their future husbands consumed by the fires of Sodom, they find themselves in a situation where they have no future prospect of someone to provide for them. And so in desperation, they devise a plan, verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The younger daughter does the same thing the next night. And then we're told, verse 36, thus 
both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. It's hard to comprehend the depravity of this situation. Lot, through a series of terrible decisions, ended up in a situation where his virgin daughters, who he had tried to exploit sexually to appease the men of Sodom, found himself the subject of sexual exploitation at their hands. This sordid, incestuous incident in his old age is the last mention of Lot in the story of Abraham. This man who had lived a life of pursuing his own self-interest, who chased after wealth and prosperity and power, departs the scene in shame and disgrace. And yet, as we've seen, he is described in the New Testament as righteous. How can that possibly be right? How could someone who lived a life of such selfishness, who got himself mired in such shameful stuff, possibly be acceptable to God? Well, the answer actually lies in these verses. If you look at verse 27, we read that after the destruction of Sodom, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behind the smoke of the land, it went, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Lot's deliverance from Sodom, it wasn't because he was a good guy. It was because of the prayers of Abraham. And the reason he was declared righteous, it wasn't because of the life he lived. It was because of the life of another. Even though he had led a conflicted life, where the consequences of his decisions caused so much pain for him and for those around him, Lot shared the faith of his uncle Abraham. He believed in the one God had promised Abraham, his promised offspring. You see, in the darkness of that cave, in the depths of depravity, a light shone. Read verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Even in the shame and the sorrow of sexual sin, God was at work bringing beauty from brokenness. The result of this incestuous encounter was the birth of Moab. And many years later, a young Moabite woman by the name of Ruth, a descendant of this line, would arrive as a widow in Bethlehem. There she would marry and give birth to Obed, the grandfather of King David. And from the line of David, would come the only truly righteous one who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ that Peter could describe Lot as righteous. 
Not because of any good in, in Lot, but because of his faith in the promised one. And that same righteousness belongs to anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. That even when we are mired in sin and shame, even when we think that we are too far gone, even when we are full of regret at the consequences of bad decisions, if we have put our faith in Jesus, then we can cling to the sure and certain hope that we have been rescued. We have been forgiven because the righteous one endured the judgment of God so that we could know what it is to be declared blameless in God's sight, acceptable to God, not because of anything good in us, but because of what Christ has done for us. And as we lift our eyes to Him, as we remember His rescue, we can live our lives knowing that even our darkest moments need not define us. We don't need to pursue the, the pleasures of this world in the hope that they will satisfy us. Instead, we can live a life of, of deep joy that transcends our circumstances, a life of contentment in the one who came to give life and give it abundantly. And we can look forward to the day when we will know the everlasting joy and satisfaction of life in his kingdom where there will be no more sin and there will be no more shame, where the pain of regret will give way to the wonder of delighting in our Savior face to face. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, there's so much in there and so uh, much darkness. Uh, and yet, Lord, we see the light in the midst of that darkness. We thank you that in Christ there is hope. In Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is freedom. And we thank you that that is there for anyone who would trust in him. Lord, we see the depths of human depravity in so much of what we just looked at. And yet we see that your grace goes deeper still that you offer mercy to those who would receive it. Lord, pray that as we dwell on your mercy, as we dwell on your grace, as we dwell on your love, that our eyes would be lifted to the one who offers peace with you, the promised King, our Lord Jesus. And as we come to this table to take bread and wine, now we pray that you would strengthen our hearts by your, your Spirit, that you would refresh us and help us to to live for you in the light of who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.